Blog Talk Radio. author of the release Searching for Roy Buchanan. Two teenagers' horrific deaths, the environment, politics, and a quest for justice confront the reader in Drink to Every Beast, a Pennsylvania-centric thriller from the pen of Joel Burkett, an environmental and energy attorney. Burkett was selected as 2019's Lawyer of the Year in Environmental Litigation by Best Lawyers in America for Central PA, and he has written extensively on the law. Uh, Joel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tori. I'm looking forward to uh, talking with you today. Well, drink to every beast. Uh, Let's begin with a little bit of the background your experience showed in crafting of this book. Tell us about your history and and the history behind uh, Drink to Every Beast. Sure. Um, Many, many years ago, I decided uh, to become an environmental lawyer, and uh, that was even uh, when I was in college at Penn State. I majored in, uh, got a Bachelor of Science degree in Physical Geography. And uh, then from there, I started looking for a program in environmental law, and I went to Vermont Law School, spent three years there, and got a degree in, in uh, a law degree. And then uh, following that, I was very fortunate to, to come back to my home state, Pennsylvania, where I became an assistant attorney general with uh, what was then called the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Resources, uh, today uh, Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, or DEP, and uh, worked there for three years. And since then, I've been in private practice uh, with uh, the vast majority of my practice in environmental law. So uh, I have a lot of experience in environmental law. I've seen a lot over the years. I've, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, cases and been involved in a lot of cases. And uh, I, I kind of kept track of my experiences as an environmental lawyer and some of the characters and interesting people that I've met. So, um, you know, I also kind of simultaneously had this passion for writing, which I did on the side or I did at night, and uh, that became uh, very serious about a dozen years ago, and I started writing uh, quite seriously, uh, usually pretty late at night, eight or nine o'clock at night, and uh, Mm -hmm. eventually I started writing novels, and uh, one of those novels is this one, Drink to Every Beast. And uh, you have written a series of these. I'd like to talk a little more about some of these others a little later in the program, but uh, Drink to Every Beast, the opening, and they always tell you that uh, the opening has to grab people. This look sounded, it, it is, I, I see the visual as I'm reading books of any sort, and this could have been in a horror movie or like a monster flick from the 60s uh, with these, these two teenagers, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, they, they just, this innocent uh, swim suddenly turns into this horrific thing. Um, my understanding, though, is that this story is based on an actual case. Yes, it is, uh, although um, obviously uh, I'm going to say the vast majority of it, in fact, uh, 99% of it is fiction, and the characters okay. are fiction, the incidents are fiction. 
this incident at the beginning of the story is fictionalized. And, uh, you know, I, I, I will say that, uh, uh, that in the course of my career, um, I, I never encountered uh, directly anyway a murder or, or, uh, or death like this. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that either could have happened or may have happened or uh, I read about happening somewhere else in a very different context. So um, it's, not, it's not completely out of uh, the realm of possibility. You know, uh, in Pennsylvania, as in all other places in the United States and everywhere, really, uh, there is a legacy of dumping of toxic waste. And yeah. uh, aside from the fact that it's a, it's a purely criminal act, some of the chemicals that have been dumped have been really pretty horrendous things. And uh, when those chemicals are dumped, uh, if people were to come in contact with them, uh, that could really result in a horrendous result, as we have at the beginning of this story. Uh, my two teens come in contact with uh, phenol, which is also known as carbolic acid, which when it is uh, very uh, concentrated, uh, can cause the kinds of injuries that, uh, that these two teens, teens suffered in my story. But uh, it is a problem. It continues to be a problem. If you go on the DEP's website, they have a whole section of their website devoted to, um, uh, to illegal dumping. But illegal dumping over the years has really been a, a significant problem everywhere, and it continues to be a problem today. Yes. Now, I did not live in Pennsylvania during that time. Um, the case – now, I understand it, it, when you, you can take – you know, we all do this, especially in fiction when we write. We take incidents that we remember or that uh, happen to others, and that's something I've often done is I will change the situation. I'll change the, I'll change the names, obviously, and I'll change some of, the, some of it to protect those involved. But um, sometimes you can just take an actual incident, and suddenly you can make it different, and you can make it work. And that obviously is what happened here. With regards to the case that I guess now you would say loosely based on, how much of a buzz did it cause at that time? Oh, it was a huge case. There was a, um, a uh, uh, service station up in uh, northeast PA that was mm -hmm. accepting um, uh, hazardous waste, uh, and uh, they had a borehole, just the way I describe it in my story. They had a borehole on their property. And uh, the borehole went down into the old abandoned uh, deep mine workings. And for a relatively little money, I think it was 75 or 100 bucks, you could dump a load of hazardous waste into this borehole. And uh, ultimately, the, uh, the hazardous waste found its way into um, the Susquehanna River and did cause mm -hmm. a major environmental uh, calamity and a major environmental cleanup. And that probably ran into the millions of dollars, I would bet. I'm sure it ran into the high tens of millions of dollars. And then and we're talking money from several decades back. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, the cleanup uh, certainly stretched into the 1980s, even into the 1990s, uh, when EPA and DEP um, uh, uh, started de uh, determining who the, the people were that were responsible for the dumping. Of course, the, uh, the company that owned the property had very little money, uh, and even mm -hmm. the uh, the um, uh, transportation companies had very little money, uh, but the companies that had owned the waste or that had at one time uh, uh, gotten rid of the waste, uh, they were some pretty substantial companies, as I recall, and they were required to pay for the cleanup. And it was a very substantial cleanup. It involved cleaning up um, uh, really a very substantial stretch of the uh, Susquehanna River in the Pittston mm -hmm. area. 
Right. Now, were there ever any criminal charges filed in connection with that case? Yes, there were, in fact. Uh, there were against the owners of the uh, property. Uh, so um, it was a it was a pretty substantial case. What's funny is that um, uh, after the after the uh, uh, story was released, uh, one of the readers who was the former assistant U.S. attorney uh, emailed me and he asked me whether he was the model for my main character, Mike Jacobs, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then he suggested that if he wasn't the model, he gave me the names of two other people. He said, "Well, if I'm not the model, are these other two guys the model for the main character?" And I had to assure him that. None of the three of them were um, were the, were the uh, models for the main character, Mike Jacobs. In fact, well, and that, and that, people, and that, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, that's fine. I, I, that's 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 a question. I'm, I'm sure you've probably had a few people with some of the personalities and the people that you've known over the years. They probably had a bunch of people come up and say something to the extent of, "Is that person me?" Oh, my gosh. Well, you're a writer, so you know what that's like. You know, somebody reads your oh, yeah. story and they say, wait a minute. Um, I will say that there's a little bit of DNA from a lot of different people in each of my characters. So um, it's it's not at all unusual to uh, to you know, remember an incident of, uh, you know, that somebody uh, that somebody was involved in. And uh, uh, that incident is, you know, as they say, uh, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. And so when you yeah. when there's an incident that sticks in your mind and you and you write about it, you change it up, you make it more fictionalized, but but the basics of that incident are there. So somebody reads that and they assume then that they must be the uh, character. I will say that um, my character Mike Jacobs, uh, we talk about. I talk about the fact that um, for a year he was a rabbinical student at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and uh, I had a friend, uh, another lawyer. I won't mention who it is, but I had a friend who. Was a lawyer who spent a year as a rabbinical student before going mm-hmm. to college and then going to law school. And it always just stuck in the back of my mind that, gee, that's kind of an interesting little tidbit. Maybe I'll use it. So my character, Mike Jacobs, is not based on that guy, uh, but, you know, it's, it's got a, a little bit of DNA uh, from him. And that's the thing uh, when it comes to characters. People often ask me, where do you come up with these these unusual characters that you have in your own books? And I just sort of admit that they all come from disparate places, but it, there are times that, yeah, like a, a detail about someone, as obscure as it might be, that's the same thing. It'll stick in my mind and be like, oh, yeah. And it's like I remember so-and-so used to do – used to take – like so-and-so took martial arts back in the day, and I thought I, – I used to as a kid, but this was someone else that I knew. He took a different form, and I thought, oh, Maybe I can use that. And then somewhere down the road, it's like, oh, I'm going to work that in, and that's what this guy's going to do. And it's kind of fun to do that, really. Well, it is. And uh, you know, I think every writer has their, uh, their mental uh, laundry list of interesting places and people and interesting tidbits about places and people. And, and you do sometimes work them into your stories, uh, fictionalized, of course. Uh, but you can't say then afterwards, well, gee, you know, uh, this character is based on Bob because that's just right. not the way it works. I mean, the character, there, there may be a little tidbit about, about Bob in that character, but it, it's not Bob. The um, mm-hmm. other thing, too, is that uh, one thing that I found, and really one of the things that I love about writing, is uh, when my characters start talking to me. And if you're oh, not yes. a writer, you may think that, you may think that, uh, that maybe I've got some sort of a psychological problem. But I, you would understand, and every other writer would understand, 
and that is that that when your when your book is really coming together, and you're in yes. the room doing your writing, all of a sudden it's it's almost as though the characters are dictating to you what they're saying more than you. Yes. More than you creating the character, the character who is now somewhat fully developed is sort of telling you what what they're saying, and uh, sometimes you're surprised. I, I do a lot of. Um, a lot of my writing these days, especially, is uh, dictation. I use Dragon uh, Voice to uh, text um, uh, software, but um, mm-hmm. you know, there, I'm some, sometimes just surprised when my when my characters go in a particular direction, which is not necessarily the direction I wanted to take them, but kind of the direction that they seem to want to go. That's right, and that is something that I subconsciously started doing. It's ironic. I began to very seriously write this in this line 12 years ago as well and i didn't know it was happening at first but as i was developing characters even before i started writing i suddenly began to realize that i was having conversations with these characters and we were just talking and or they were doing most of the talking and then i just took to interviewing them i just started interviewing these people and asking them questions and Suddenly I'm finding out more things about these people than I could have thought, and that just makes them better characters. That makes them more memorable, quite honestly. Well, there's a really good writer. Her name is Nicole Bernier, and I read one of her books a while ago, and uh, she actually was in uh, Camp Hill several years ago for a a, a talk, and I attended her her presentation, which was very nice. But she used to refer to – she refers to her characters as her imaginary friends. And they become that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's a remarkable thing when you were um, uh, when you're in your room and you've been at it for a while and you're you're having this conversation with your or you're interviewing or you're, you're you know you're just listening to your imaginary friends. It's <laughs> I think all writers must go through this. I, I imagine they do. I don't think it's just you and me. Um, but well, I think yeah. all writers go through this. Well, and especially the, greatest... the friends part. Yes, yes. Well, I've had I've had two different two different thoughts on that. One of them was um a former girlfriend in rather rather uh, snarkily accused me of sleeping with my characters. And <laughs> I said, "Well, it's not quite like that. It <laughs> but you do get a certain level of intimacy in terms of discussion and in terms of the secrets." And the stories being told, and like you said, it's just and, and Nicole, I think, was on the same is on the same track. Yes, they kind of are our friends, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they really are. I mean, you, you absolutely become friends with them. You you certainly know their inner thoughts. Um, you know the inner thoughts of uh, your main character, but you also know the inner thoughts of your antagonists in the story. And uh, mm-hmm. some of them are not pleasant people, and you really have to. Um, you have to dig deep sometimes to uh, uh, to make sure that they're as bad or as evil or as pernicious as you want them to be. And uh, but you know they're they're talking to you. I mean they're really talking to you inside your head. And you're deciding what of the many things they're saying you're going to put down. What's worth putting down on the uh, on the page, and what what yeah. the readers are going to be interested in hearing. But uh, no, and there's a, there is a certain intimacy. There really is because. Um, it's just the nature of it, and, and not just in first person, but in close third person as well. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly in first person, you're totally inside the head of your 
uh, your narrator. But in close third person, you're also inside their head. And even in uh, more distant third persons, you're, um, you're, you're imagining what is inside the mind of your characters. And that's a, that, that is an intimacy. That's, a, that's an unusual intimacy um, that, that I yeah. think uh, readers, are, readers are expecting when they're reading a story. They don't want to read something that, that looks like um, you know, they're watching from a distance. They really want to get inside some of these folks. Yeah, and one of the things I've often done is I will change points of view to make sure we get the perspective of the other characters and get an idea of what they're thinking, but or what they and how do they see it. And sometimes it's it's it it becomes very important for me that uh, everybody's mindset is a little bit different, and whether they are an antagonist, a protagonist, whatever they may be. They have their own unique mindset and their own set of thoughts and their own set of values and beliefs. And it can be a little difficult at times. Again, like I say, it comes back to even taking time to talk to and have that intimate conversation with the, you know, the side character or the uh, person who just makes a cameo. Even that person has a value and makes the story interesting. So it, as I say to people, there's a little work involved. There's a lot of work, in fact, involved before you even start writing or putting anything down. I think you'd agree with that. Oh, yes. And in fact, um, I've written, I've, I've actually th- completed three Mike Jacobs novels. Uh, Drink to Every Beast is the first. Uh, a Mid-Rage is the next one that's up. That's about a uh, strip mining operation. And then the one after mm-hmm. that is called Strange Fire. Uh, that's about fracking. Um, but after I'd written the first two, uh, Mike Jacobs' books, I decided to go off in a different direction and write something completely different. And I wrote a speculative fiction book that I really like that I, I hope to have published in a couple of years, and that's called mm-hmm. Little Brother. And when I started writing that story, it's, it's a story about um, that takes place maybe 15 years in the future. And when I wrote the story, the idea was to have a story about a police department that goes to war uh, with the FBI. And mm-hmm. um, I wanted uh, you know, to set up this this world that is just a few years in the future, so most everything is very uh, – we, we, we relate to most everything. And I didn't want to write a science fiction story, so it's really speculative fiction. But as I started mm-hmm. to write the story, I realized that my character, my main character, was Mike Jacobs, and I didn't want that. So after I'd written about five pages of the story, I <laughs> uh, rewrote it, and I rewrote it for a female police detective. And uh, mm-hmm. Bernie Baker is her name, and Bernie uh, – Bernice – uh, becomes uh, my main character, and her voice is totally different. So what I had to do to get <laughs> to completely get out of Mike Jacobs' head and to get into another char- main character's head was to change up the character entirely because otherwise I didn't want to write every character, uh, every main character and have that character be uh, Mike Jacobs. I have another um, character that I'm starting to write for named Bobby Beck, and Bobby mm-hmm. is also an environmental lawyer, uh, but Bobby, um, if he hadn't been a uh, a lawyer, he would have been lead guitarist in a uh, in a rock band. <laughs> so he he's a he's again a very very different character that than uh, Mike Jacobs. And and I think you 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 know if you're writing different books, uh, maybe one offs that kind of thing, um, it, I think it could be very easy to fall into a trap and write kind of the same character that you've written in your other books. Not that you're not that you're overly familiar with them, but that it's just sort of your, it's your voice. It's the way you're actually telling the story. So you have to change them up a lot. It, it does happen because um, 
my, my new book, Searching for Roy Buchanan, is the first of a series, and I had written extensively on that, and most of this is unpublished, obviously, but uh, when it came time to look to something else, I was still writing in a similar vein, and I was coming up with another protagonist that was very similar to Aki, my, my main character, and I thought, okay, this is not the same person, and then I had to stop and just be like, okay, this is a different person. We've got to make her different. So I changed her circumstances and I put her in a different spot. And then I started to visualize. I suddenly had a different looking person and a different acting person. And here's another person with a whole set of her own issues. And yeah, it's, it's very hard. You write to type because your mindset is in that treadmill of here's another Mike story, but no, wait, we gotta, we gotta get off of that. That actually, Joel leads me to a question I wanted to bring up about Mike. Um, I have consciously tried to avoid it myself, but our own selves always tend to end up in our work. Um, you've talked a bit about where Mike's, some of Mike's characteristics come from. Is he possibly a little bit you from earlier in life, or did you find yourself popping up and drink to every beast? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I would say I can relate to Mike. I would say that mm-hmm. uh, just like other people's DNA is in Mike, there's definitely some of my DNA in, in Mike as well. So um, I'm sure that I'm sure that that's the case. I, I think um, I, I don't know that I would be able to say, oh, that's me. But I think other people have, have already told me uh, that they, they believe that there are certain aspects of Mike that seem similar to me. But it's, it was mm-hmm. certainly not done intentionally. It was not – I didn't sit, sit down and, and decide to write a memoir and change my name up to Mike. So I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I'm Mike at all. Um, but uh, kind of reminds me of Leonard Nimoy. If you recall, he wrote a book uh, several years after um, Star Trek was over, and he said I, the title of his book was I Am Not Spock. You remember that? Right. I remember was, that uh, one, and then, and then about a few years ago, a few years before his passing, obviously, he wrote a book called I Am Spock. And it well, was sort of like – go ahead. If you recall, he got a lot of blowback uh, from the fans of uh, Star Trek, who uh, really yep. turned on him, I think, after he wrote I Am Not Spock. I think he felt a need to acknowledge uh, that, that, in fact, there was some uh, relationship between him and Spock. I think he was afraid that that uh, he was going to lose his uh, his audience and, and lose his fan base. I, I believe that was part of what I read at the time. But the point of the matter is that you know, if you're an actor and you're um, you're a good actor, there's definitely going to be some of you in the character. And I think that uh, casting directors and directors and movies are not just looking for a good actor, but they're looking for a good actor who sort of fits the mold already. So that the actor, of course, is acting, but at the same time is also uh, there. There are, all, there are also similarities between the actor and the character that they're playing, just like the writer there may be some similarities between the writer and uh, his protagonist or maybe some other characters in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think what Nimoy was, Nimoy was doing in, in I Am Spock was sort of an admission that he had come to terms with being so directly identified with that character, so directly linked to him, and even admitted that that he and Spock had their own conversations quite often. So, uh, and it was it was a bit of his own autobiography. It was autobiographical as well with, with other parts of his career, but um, it was sort of, you, you know, it's like if, if there's this one role that you're defined by, you're, you're never going to really get rid of that. And 
I think sometimes in our writing we are we are kind of connected to certain people and we're always going to be remembered by by that um, because it, you know I, I was having a discussion yesterday with one of my colleagues you know, J.R.R. Tolkien will forever be connected to Bilbo Baggins the Hobbit and the the, the fabulous Lord of the Rings characters and uh, the author of Game of Thrones is going to be connected to his it's kind of an inevitable thing. Well, that's right, and um, you know, I, I guess depending upon who that character is, it's not a bad thing. I mean, I I like Mike. Mike is kind of an everyman. Uh, he's intended mm-hmm. to be a guy who who starts out as sort of a weak person and who grows in this story, and he grows even more in the other stories that follow on. Um, one of the you know one of the things that I really tried to do was in uh, Drink to Every Beast show him as a guy who starts out. Uh, making bad decisions both as a, uh, as a human being and as a lawyer. And uh, over the course of the story, uh, he grows. And, and I think people, when they read stories, they, they, they don't want to read about somebody who's exactly the same at the end of the story as they are at the beginning of the story. Right. And so you, you do want to see that growth. And so, yeah. um, you know, I, I think Mike is a, is, a likable, uh, is a likable character. And I think he's, a, a, you know, I, I wrote him as a good guy. Um, but he's a guy who's flawed. He's a guy who's com- yeah. com- a complicated guy, and uh, you know. So I, I, I wouldn't mind being identified or related to, to Mike Jacobs. I think he's he's intended to be a good guy, a good guy with flaws and characteristics that are that need some polishing, and uh, and and that happens and certainly in this story, but it happens across the uh, other stories that I've already uh, written about Mike. And that's the thing is, Mike came across to me that way. He came across to me very much as a guy who's trying to do the right thing, but he's, you know, there's certain vulnerabilities that he has. And the thing you're right is he's human and he's not, you know, we're not going to have a perfect hero and you're going to want to see, the reader would want to see growth. How does he gain strength? How does he gain experience? What does he do? And I thought that was, and I thought that was definitely evident as, as it got on, it was like his strength grew, his confidence grew. And so it's definitely set it, it sets him up, you know, you've set him up well for the next, for these next two that are coming. Well, you know, the other thing I didn't do with Mike, and, and I remember talking with one publisher about this, um, I didn't give Mike any superpowers. And, um, you know, the uh, one um, uh, publisher that I was talking about said, you know, Mike ought to have a superpower. He ought to be something that he does. That nobody else can do. Uh, maybe, maybe it's uh, wow. he knows karate, or, or, or maybe he uh, I don't know. Maybe he uh, remembers everything, or maybe he's a um, you know he's uh, he's a former basketball player, you know, or something like that. And uh, and I said no, that's that's not what I wanted to do. I said I, yes, I've read many many stories that have been very successful. Harlan Coben uh, and others have written very very successful. Uh, books about uh, you know people with superpowers of, and, and by superpowers I mean superpowers with a small s, not necessarily mm-hmm. uh, you know not necessarily um, uh, you know like Superman kind of superpowers. But um, I didn't want Mike to have any superpowers. I wanted Mike to be relatable. I really wanted people to to look at Mike and say, oh yeah, I, I can relate to that guy. Uh, I can I could see myself doing some of those things. I screwed up before. And and he's not going to be able to rely on the fact that he's, you know, six foot nine, uh, or that he's a, um, 
an expert rifleman or that he's, uh, you know, he's a, um, uh, he's got a memory that where he never forgets anything. He's a normal, he's a normal guy in that sense. And yes. so I really wanted to write somebody who was, who was relatable. And that's, and I think you definitely did because it's like, um, yeah, you don't, your characters, if, if they feel right to you, if they feel right to the author, they should feel right to the reader. And having Mike as a regular guy, yes, he's specialized in the law. He's specialized in certain areas, but he also has to learn how to adapt. You know, he has to learn how to use those skills. But it's like, again, there's, I, I, I don't know. I, I've never fully understood why. I mean, why people have to have that. But it, it certainly makes it can make a story sensational. It can make a story interesting. But sometimes it takes away from it, don't you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, and, I, and I'm not I'm not criticizing uh, him at all because one of my favorite um, authors is Harlan Coben. He's just a mm-hmm. terrific author. I, I love his books. Uh, and his main character is a guy named Myron Volatar. And Myron is a former basketball player, so he's already tall. He's already got the um, uh, the uh, you know, you know the, the sports ability that other people don't have. He's got a friend who's. Uh, uh, Name is escaping me right now. A Win Lockwood, and you know Win is a um, you know is a super rich guy, a billionaire, that kind of thing. And uh, and Win has Win is actually the one with the superpowers because he's got some superpowers so far as his uh, his uh, uh, his uh, karate fighting skills and other skills that he has. Plus the fact that he seems to have unlimited resources, and, and every time they need to escape or go somewhere, they're always going in Wynn's private jet. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, and I and I love I love the uh, I love Harlan Coben's stories, and I love his writing. He's just he's just a great writer. But you know, but I didn't you know I don't know that normal people could relate to that. Normal people are not you know six foot nine. Normal people do not have a private jet jet at their disposal, or normal people don't <laughs> you know aren't you know quadruple black belts. And, uh, and and it's kind of cool reading about that. It's, it's cool reading about uh, uh, a person, a character who's like that. But you're not going to be able to say, oh, I could do that. Yeah, yeah. And it's that was something that um, I had to consider as well because, you know, in, in, in my book, my new book, Searching, um, Aki does have the ability to time travel, but she knows already even without much experience in its use, she knows that the re- I can't solve my problems in the real world with this. This isn't. I can't just turn this on and everything's going to be okay. You know, she's still a human being. She still has to face the same things every other person has to face. And um, I find those characters to be a lot more fun. I mean, I think, yeah, like like you're saying, it's it's fantastic to have those kind of characters, and you can put them into so many more dangerous situations or even crazier situations than an average person. But sometimes, but you know, but like I, I said before, if Mike, if Mike felt good to you, then Mike must be Mike must be good. So it, it, it's kind of like nothing to worry about, really. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's like I said, I, I have this other character that I'm going to write a book about, and I've started outlining some things about that, Bobby Beck. And and I make Bobby, um, you know, a guy who, for a variety of reasons, stopped playing uh, serious rock and roll music, dropped out of his, his band, went to law school at his father's urging, and uh, and today is, an, is a lawyer, but, you know, but he, he continues to play at home, he continues to do a few gigs, but... 
But you yeah. know that his superpower is the fact that that he's a really really good lead guitarist, and uh, <laughs> plus he's covered with uh, he's covered with uh, tattoos, so he's very very different than Mike. And part part of my writing of Bobby was to write somebody who was very different than uh, than Mike, um, somebody so that I, I wouldn't find myself uh, writing for Bobby and uh, ending up with you know Mike Jacobs part two. I didn't want to do that. I had a question for you actually. About your um, your book, uh, Searching for Roy Buchanan, you know, I was fascinated by it, and um, I was really wondering how did you decide on setting it in Japan, and uh, I mean, what what motivated you to set? Did you live in Japan? Was it something that you visited there? How did you decide to set it in Japan of all places? Well, that's a question a lot of people have asked, and I have never been there, but it came out of two things. Firstly, I was not comfortable writing about myself, and I was not comfortable about writing the environment around me. I just didn't really want to do it. And Searching is a story that that essentially came out of several different threads that all kind of knotted together. And my interest in Japan partly has to do with history because I minored in history when I was in college. That was one thing. And the other parts of it were I was interested in certain elements of Japanese culture. As I'd said earlier, I I took martial arts as a kid. I've always been interested in that, even though I don't participate in it anymore. And I was interested in certain elements of Japanese culture. And I thought, well, I want to do something different. And I didn't think I had anything to lose. So I thought, let's try to go there and see if I can learn enough and observe enough to put it into the cultural context. And needless to say, 12 years ago, it wasn't right. (laughs) And I have been very fortunate to have friends of Japanese descent and others who've been able to assist me in getting it right. So I guess the main thing was just not ready, not ready to do here. And also just, just out of the the desire to just try something other. That was pretty much it. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I, I admire you because, um, uh, I, I, I expected that you were going to say, "Well, I lived in Japan for three years, and I, you know, had these great experiences there." And to be able to research it and, uh, and look into it and uh, write credibly about it uh, is is a terrific thing. It's it just bespeaks right. the amount of work that you must have done to write a story like that. Because uh, I know just writing a story about Pennsylvania, where I've lived my entire life, uh, other than three years in law school. It's uh, you know it's a uh, it's it's difficult enough writing about something you're familiar with, let alone writing something you're not familiar with. And that lends to one other thing too, is that because you know you lived here and you know the area, and you pointed out so many areas that I recognize. I've I've only lived here since 2000, but I recognize enough of them. And think about this: it's like you're going to have that one reader in Pittston, you're going to run into one day and said, "That's not the right location," <laughs> but. You you do have it. it. It seems like you really you really you 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 drilled down into getting the details right and this you know and where things were. So that's a lot of work in itself. Well, yes and no. Uh, and and I have had people already come up to me and say, uh, this restaurant where they have their date is that the Firehouse Restaurant? And uh, as a matter of fact, it is. Um, uh-huh. And Briggs Street, which is a, which features that's where Sherry lives. She lives on Briggs Street. Is that Briggs Street in Harrisburg? And yes, it is. Uh, and there are other places. I haven't, I haven't hidden places. So um, there's a scene that takes place uh, relatively early in the story 
uh, where Mike uh, meets Nikki Kane, and it's a house on Parkside Lane, um, yep. which is overlooking Italian Lake. And I haven't hidden that either. But let me also say that um, that uh, one of the great things about writing fiction is that it's fiction. And if, if the street, yep. if you want it to be a two-way street instead of a one-way street, or if you want the one way to be going in the other direction because that suits your needs better, well, then that's what's going to happen. It's going to go in the other direction. And, uh, you know, if, if the restaurant is, is really a mile away, but you want it to be around the corner, well, guess what? It's going to be around the corner because it's fiction. And that's why, um, you know, in my book, like in your book, you know, it says uh, at the beginning and it says at the end, this is fiction and the places are fictionalized. So even though there may be, uh, again, a lot of resemblance to places, Strawberry Square, for example, uh, finds its way into my story a couple of times. Um, it's a fictionalized version of Strawberry Square. And if I, you know, mm-hmm. if I want to have, um, if I want to have, uh, you know, um, I don't know, fine dining restaurant in Strawberry Square, I'm going to put one in there. And if I want to have, uh, you know, if I want to have a 90-story office building in downtown Harrisburg, I'll do that too. I don't, by the way, but, you know, so that's one of the nice <laughs> things about writing, about writing fiction is that, is that at the end of the day, it's fiction. So, uh, you get to mess with the geography, and, and you know, and you're not writing. And as you know, you're not writing a uh, a travel log. You're not writing a travel book where there's some expectation that you're going to be accurate. I mean, you're writing fiction, so um, it, it's great. I, I did, I did, I spent a fair amount of time up in that part of Pennsylvania, but I also uh, took a couple of trips up to uh, northeastern PA specifically when mm-hmm. I was writing the book because I wanted to yep. get a feel for it. it was there are places where I describe the houses, for example, and I wanted to get a, I wanted to really get a good feel for that, so that I could describe them accurately. Uh, I've been down in deep coal mines. Uh, it's been a few years now, but I've been down in deep coal mines. It's very memorable when you do something like that. And so I wanted to get an accurate picture of those of those places. Um, I wanted to bring my readers to those places. I, you know, I, you know, it's like your story. Exactly. Um, uh, searching where you know you want your readers. I wanted to take them on a little trip to Japan. And, mm-hmm. um, and in my story, I wanted to take them on a little trip to uh, northeastern PA and to uh, a, a deep mine and a, and, a, and a shaft going down into a deep mine. And, uh, and, and I think readers want that. I have in my next story in uh, Amid Rage, uh, a lot of the uh, major scenes take place in a uh, large open pit mine in uh, western Pennsylvania. And I've spent many quality hours in uh, those kinds of places. And, and I think mm-hmm. readers are looking for that kind of stuff. So when I have a car, I have Mike actually uh, in the next story in a, in a DEP Jeep driving down uh, the, um, uh, the ramp into the, uh, into the mine and coming up yep. on the uh, right side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the scenes in the mines were really, really well done. And, uh, like when when you without giving it away, uh, like some of the real drama or some of the real action down there was fantastic. Experience in, in the fiction. Yeah, and it was like you 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 put it in really well. Like the, the, some of the some of the really you know it's like you felt like you're right there. You're down you're down in there, and it's cold and it's wet, and this is all happening. And that, and you got the excitement level. And yeah, that's that's the thing. You have to go to these places if you can, and. Um, you know, you took us there, and that's exactly what people have often told me is whenever I read a story, they always say, take me there. I want to go someplace. Well, you know, um, the writer that probably would surprise everybody 
who who does who claims to do very little research about his places is Lee Child. Um, mm-hmm. I you know I I've, I've read several of the Jack Reacher novels, and you mm-hmm. read them and you know you feel like you're in some little town in Texas or some little town in in Alabama or wherever uh, Reacher <clears> is that day. And uh, I, I attended a lecture that he gave maybe two or three years ago at uh, International Thriller Writers. And uh, somebody asked him about how much research do you do for these stories? And he said he's British. He said in his British accent, he said, oh, none, none whatsoever. <laughs> the audience, the audience was, was, it was an audience packed full of people who write thrillers. And I would say to a person, they were stunned. I mean, how could you, how could you do that? How could you say that? He, he just sort of picks a place out on the map. And then he, he just imagines what it would be like. Now, uh, Lee Child is an unbelievable reader. So when he says he doesn't do any research, he may not actually uh, go online and look up, you know, um, the map of a city or, or visit the city that, that he's writing about. But I'll bet you he's read a dozen books already about you know, the terrain and read books about uh, that area. But I was very, very surprised to hear him say that he did no research. But like I said, I, I, I expect that he's, he's got a pretty good travelogue in his mind based on all the re- reading that he's done. Well, I think and that's the thing. I think everybody has a bit of – has their own style, and they develop their own style as an author of, you know, how do they do it. And research for me, when – in the Japanese question, I, I've done quite a, a bit of research in terms of reading different books, watching different – you know, watching some films, watching videos, watching documentaries. And more and more over time, you start to pick things up. And in my non-Japanese work, my other work – uh, I I will make an effort to sort of draw on where I have been physically, and then it's uh, it does become the question of okay, how does this fit to some other place I haven't been yet? And our imagination really can do a lot of the research for us as long as you can kind of and and I I, I just like to let it go. I mean, some people keep it under control, I suppose, but I like to let it go and just see okay, what are we going to find here? And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> Right. Well, I do know that um, um, in my stories, you know, between the the work that I've done out of doors, the work that I've done as an environmental lawyer, the work that I did as a um, as an assistant attorney general for DER, um, I've had, I, fortunately, I've had a lot of experiences, and I've been in places where uh, I'm going to say normal people don't usually go. I'll have to write mm-hmm. this in someday. I, I had the experience of being dressed up in a level four containment uh, outfit and going into a building that was having the uh, asbestos removed from it as a part of an investigation that I was involved in as a private practitioner uh, representing a client who was being investigated by the U.S. attorney in West Virginia. And, you know, those are not the places where most people go and, um, you know, uh, fortunately for me, when I start thinking about those places again, um, it, it comes back pretty strongly, and I'm able to, to write about uh, my impressions and my recollection, my memory, and put that into the story. And then, with a little bit of additional research, um, you know, you can uh, you know you can enhance that so that it becomes very real for the uh, for the reader. Because you know, the uh, the, the readers, I again, you know readers are looking to be transported to another place or another time and not, not just 
through time travel like your characters in searching. Um, but, you know, the readers want that. The readers, I think, um, expect that. And, and we as writers owe that to them. Yes. And it is interesting, too, that uh, you have a unique set of – well, first of all, you have a skill set, number one, that a lot of us don't have. And then you have that experience like um, – you know, because it was funny. I was just watching a documentary on the Fukushima disaster in Japan, and one of the one of the people who had to go into the plant to try to um, try to cool down the reactors, knowing that he was probably going to die, you know, down the road, went and did it. He said that you know, and he talked about how he had to wear two environmental suits, and they were completely taped up and wrapped up, and you could hardly really do much moving. And he said it was incredibly hot. And you were stuck inside that suit for hours, and he said it was it was horrible. He said, notwithstanding what we were facing, uh, he said, just that experience is is not fun. It's not something you recommend. And you might have had a little bit of that, having to be wrapped up in that suit, but knowing you're going into a toxic place, and then you can talk about that, and you can relate right. that to people. And it's um, – yeah. go ahead, yeah. I was going to say, and 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 that's right. And um, things like that tend to be memorable. When I visited um, a Deep Mine once or twice uh, in my role as a as a DER lawyer, and when I visited uh, strip mines over the years, or when I visited uh, drill pads or drilling operations over the years, mm-hmm. those things are pretty memorable. And um, you may not remember all the details, but with a little bit of research, you can uh, you can uh, revive the details. And and again, I think that. It's those experiences that are uh, that are really um, uh, something that the writers are looking uh, or the readers are looking for. There's a really um, uh, good book that I enjoyed by Pam Lazos called Oil and Water. Pam is an EPA lawyer, mm-hmm. and she has a uh, a scene in her story uh, where one of the characters is doing a dive to try to fix a leak from a uh, a drill rig in the Gulf of Mexico. And mm-hmm. I mean, you feel like you're right there. And I, right. and I was amazed to ask Pam, how, how did you do that? And I just saw something that she writes. She, she blogs. Uh, her blog is called um, um, uh, Blue Water, Green Life, uh, or Green Life, mm-hmm. Blue Water. And she's a very good blogger. But in, in her blog, she mentioned that her husband <laughs> is a deep sea diver. I think he's a commercial deep sea diver. So she was able to you know, interview her uh-huh. husband. Uh, to get his uh, experiences doing things like that. And, uh, you know, so even if you don't have that ex- experience yourself, you, know, you can interview people and uh, and get uh, ideas from them or get details from them. I know, I remember reading uh, uh, Isaac Besheva Singer, uh, the, the great uh, writer from the 20th century, who wrote many, many short stories and, and other longer works, but he used to interview people. He used to just make himself available. He would, he would find people just to collect their stories, and then he would change up the stories or enhance their stories. So a lot of writers over the years, in addition to the research that they've done, you know, the research also involves talking with people. So um, you know, even where you yourself have not had that kind of experience, there is the, um, you know, there are other people out there that you can talk to who can and enhance what it is that you're writing about. Right, and that's part of the research. Actually, Joel, I wanted to ask you, you have mentioned a number of, of authors here. 
one of the things that's always interested me, no matter what kind of a, a living a person makes or what career they choose, early on, uh, the things that they read always tend to, to set a tone for them. What were you reading when you were growing up? What were your folks reading? Because that always seems to play in. I, I, I always like to ask about that. Yeah, uh, and that's a great question. Um, my parents were were – my mother was a really good reader, but my father was an unbelievably good reader. And by that I mean mm-hmm. my dad read many, many books. He had a um, – master's degree in English literature from uh, University of Pennsylvania. And he told me wow. that when he was studying for his, um, his master's degree, the expectation was that he would read a novel a day. And, uh, wow. and then many years later, my dad ultimately went on to become a dentist. Um, but uh, many years later, when he was not um, uh, you know, reading uh, in the context of his uh, master's degree, he would easily go through a novel uh, maybe every three or four days so he was a very, very fast uh, reader, and he read very, very complicated and difficult things. He went all the way through Proust. I remember that. I remember trying to read Proust once, and I, I got stuck after, uh, you know, 20 or 30 pages. And my father had this, like, six-volume set of Proust that he'd read the whole thing in a matter of months, maybe or weeks. It was not a long time. It was to read Proust. But in any event, wow. uh, so, you know, and my father, my parents read widely um my my father read uh, you know everything from proust to science fiction so he was a very mm-hmm. very um uh, uh uh eclectic reader and my reading has been eclectic too um i remember as a as a youngster reading um catch 22 by joseph heller i mean mm-hmm. i was probably uh i don't know 13 or 14 years old when i read that and i remember it it really had an impact on me and, uh, and also, I was very fortunate. I, I had a group of friends uh, in junior high, uh, Paul Shoemaker, Charlie Berg, and Jeff Cohn. And mm-hmm. we used to compete with each other about the novels that we would read. I mean, <laughs> in addition to playing basketball in the, uh, in the, um, you know, in the driveway, uh, we also competed on the novels that we would read. And one um, wow. morning, when we'd be at school, we'd be talking about, oh, yeah, what'd you read? I read this. I read that. And this is, these are 13-year-old kids doing that kind of thing. So I was... Very lucky to um, to have uh, that group of friends, you know, who, who rode bicycles, played baseball, played basketball, and also uh, were interested in uh, in reading and competitive. We were competitive about our reading. And uh, as I grew older, amazing. <laughs> you know, and I look back on it, it really was, and uh, an amazing group of guys to this day. Um, but uh, as I as I look back on it, you know, today, you know, some of the readers that have meant a lot to me. Um, Philip Roth. I mean, I love Philip Roth. I thought he was a terrific writer, and not just because he was a good writer, but because he did things that uh, speak to writers more than even readers. So mm-hmm. um, when you read Goodbye Columbus or when you read uh, Portnoy's Complaint, Portnoy's Complaint in particular, I mean, Portnoy's Complaint at times is a difficult story to read, but you have to say, how do you write Portnoy's Complaint? I mean, as a, as a writer, how do you how do you write it when, it when Portnoy's complaint didn't exist prior to the time that you wrote it? I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, and if I could have had the opportunity, that would have been the question I would have asked uh, Philip Roth. I'm sure he's been asked that question, and I'll have to go back and find it. But how do you write that story? And as a, as a writer, that fascinates me that, that a guy like uh, – any writer could write like that. And so whenever you read something that is just out there totally different, uh, another one of my favorite writers is um, Cormac McCarthy, 
And uh, mm -hmm. McCarthy, uh, you know, I've read four or five of McCarthy's books. Um, the one book of his that I had for the longest time and I couldn't allow myself to read was called The Road. And, mm -hmm. of course, it was made into a, a movie. I, I, you know, I knew that it was a really super dark story, and I, I probably had it. thinking to myself, where, where is that dark place in your mind, Cormac, that you can come up with a story that's this dark and this awful in places and this incredible? I mean, it's, I mean those are things that's to me a, that are yeah. phenomenal, both as a reader but also as a writer. It's like where, where, do, you, where do you find that darkness to, to write uh, The Road? You know, where do you find and, that ability to detach yourself uh, from everyone you know? to write Portnoy's Complaint or some of the other stories is, that he's written. Or another writer that I like today is uh, Michael Chabon. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he, he wrote a great story called The Yiddish Policeman's Union. And, uh, you know, it is one of the most imaginative stories I've ever read. Uh, Chabon is a great writer, you know, in himself and uh, in, in the other books that he's, he's written. But when I read, uh, when I read, um, the Yiddish Policeman's Union, which is a story about an imaginary uh, time in Sitka, Alaska. All the Jews of Europe have been moved to Sitka, Alaska. Uh, you don't really – he doesn't talk too much about what happened in World War II, but you get the idea that World War II didn't go very well for the Allies. And one of the, uh, one of the um, uh, compromises was that the Jews of Europe were moved to Sitka, Alaska, of all places. And so he doesn't just picture Sitka, Alaska as where – all the Jews of Europe have moved and where they pretty much have maintained their, their society and their structure. But now right. it was a 50 year deal with the native Americans who lived in Sitka. And now you're in year 49 and a half. And it's about to go back to the, to the, uh, to the, the native Americans who live there. And so he has this whole plate. I mean, there, there are aspects of it that, that seem uh, like, yeah, I kind of recognize what's going on, but other things that are so totally, totally imaginative, it's it's just unbelievable. Um, but in terms of thriller writers, people that I've read before and continue to read, obviously John Grisham, he's a uh, yeah. he's a huge influence on my writing. Um, Elmore Leonard is great. Mario Puzo, I love Mario Puzo's writing. I don't think I don't think any of him has drifted into my writing, but I, I love Mario Puzo. I think I read all of his uh, all of his books at one point. Uh, and then somebody does actually drift into my writing a little bit is the writer Carl Hyacin, who I, I mm -hmm. really like. And uh, whenever you read something that's at all humorous in one of my stories, uh, that's a little bit of Carl Hyacin uh, coming into my story. There's a point in my story where Mike um, applies hemp handcuffs to uh, one <laughs> of the uh, dumpers. And uh, <laughs> and the, the dumper is looking at it. He says, he says, what the F is this? He goes, they're hemp handcuffs, <laughs> the only kind that DEP uses. There's a little bit of Carl Hyacin in that because he's, he's got that kind of sense of humor, that little twisty yeah. sense of humor. And, uh, you know, other writers that I like uh, are uh, Daniel Silva, James Patterson. Um, yeah. But there's some, man, there's some just awesome writers out there. If, I don't want to – we're running out of time. But, I mean, if you want to read, well, if you really want to do a deep dive uh, in, yeah. uh, in sort of the twisted mindset, you know, read some Thomas Harris. I mean, he, uh, he takes Hannibal Lecter. You know, we, we think of Hannibal Lecter as being Silence of the Lambs, but there probably are four or five Hannibal Lecter stories, and each one of them is 
you know, very, very scary and, uh, and also very believable. And you have to say to yourself, you know, Tom, dude, you know, where's, where do you find that stuff inside of you to write that kind of dark, dark stuff? So I, I well, love that and that, kind of and stuff. That's and I love thing, yeah. not only a story that's interesting to me as a reader, but interesting to me as a writer. Right. Well, I am going to have to stop you right there with one last question. Of You talked a little bit about what uh, Mike and uh, his, uh, his people are going to be doing. You have uh, Drink to Every Beast, and you said A Mid-Rage and Strange Fire are going to be coming up in future, yes? Yes. The next one in the series is called A Mid-Rage, followed by Strange Fire. And there's another one, actually, that's, uh, that's half-written, and that's called uh, The Firebrand. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, is there any, in a, in a very brief period, is there any advice that you would give to writers, to somebody who's, I've got a book I want to write or I'm, I'm working on one? What kind of advice do you give? Uh, two pieces of advice. Number one is just write. I mean, I've talked to people and they say, yeah, I've wanted to write this book for the longest time. And I, I keep thinking about it and I keep plotting it out in my mind. And I don't know what to do with it. And my, my advice is sit down and spend a couple of hours every day and just write. You'll see every person who's ever given advice on writing will say that. Just write. Mm-hmm. The other thing is just read. I mean, read as much as you possibly can. And if you're a slow reader, then that's okay. But, you know, you got to start picking and choosing your, your, your writers that are out there. Because, like I said, from my rather lengthy discussion of my, my, my authors that I love, uh, you, you just you just get so much of a sense of what other writers are doing. So that's really mm-hmm. important. Just read and just write. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Joel Burkett, for your time. This has been a fascinating hour, and uh, best of luck. I'm sure we'll run into each other in Harrisburg somewhere. I hope so. And, Tori, best of luck to you as well. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to the Brown Posey Press Show. Our guest has been Joel Burkett, author of Drink to Every Beast on Headline Books. I'm your host, Tori Gates. Check out my recent release, Searching for Roy Buchanan, on Brown Posey Press, as well as my other works, Live from the Cafe and A Moment in the Sun. Thank you for joining us. This is the BookSpeak Network. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. (laughs) 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.